Today, the biggest mistakes people make with their money. This is the Seven Figures Podcast Smart Money Strategies for Women with Sandy Waters. Seven Figures is sponsored by Family First Credit Union. When it comes to financial education, earning and learning go hand in hand. And Family First is here to help you and the greater Rochester community with both. What is the most recent money blunder you have made? Okay, it might be a little embarrassing, but that's okay because we've all been there. Even the super smart people have made some gut-wrenching financial mistakes. So today we're going to expose those mistakes so one, you can feel better about your own and two, so we can learn from them. Thank you for taking time to listen to the Seven Figures podcast every week, being part of our community, Financially Confident Women. And today we are going big time. Analyst for CBS News, host of the Jill on Money radio show and podcast and author of the new book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs, Jill Schlesinger joins the conversation. How are you? I'm fantastic. Great to be with you. Thanks, Aunt Jill, for squeezing time for us. Oh, yeah. Anytime. I like that. First of all, number one, you pronounced my name correctly. So already I'm inclined to love you. <laughs> I had to practice. Yeah. But <laughs> you sure know what? I also, and also you were introduced to me by somebody I love. Oh, I know. Joe Salcihi from the Stacking Benjamin Show. He is the best. Yeah, he loves you. And Aww. if he loves you, then I heart you Aww. right there. I love it. I love mm-hmm. it. So in your book, you talk about how all your listeners call you Aunt Jill. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that comes from a long time ago. It's actually because I'm so old that when I first started at CBS, all the younger people who worked at CBS Interactive, at our play, uh, we have different divisions and CNET is one of the big websites that we own. They would all come to me for financial advice, and then they started calling me Aunt Jill because I said, so, well, I'm like, oh, my God, I could be old enough to be your mother. And the guys are like, yeah, not, but you're like the cool aunt. I'm like, all right, I'll take that. I'll be a cool aunt. <laughs> well, that's what I assume, too, because you are freaking hysterical. You are so straightforward. And you're like, listen, I am not going to sugarcoat this. This is what you're doing right and wrong. Yeah. You know, the thing is that I feel like the world of personal finance is so weird because, you know, on one, so traditionally, this when I started writing this book a long time ago, because I just couldn't quite get my act together. But when I was first starting to think about writing a book, I thought, well, there's really weird amounts of information, like crazy amounts of information for people who are just in debt up to their eyeballs. Okay. They just have tons and tons of resources. And so I would say that those books are you know, just sort of massive, available, easy. But at the end of the day, it's really not that difficult a concept to say, oh, don't spend more than you make. Mm. Like, wow, that's a shocker. (laughs) Then on the other end of the spectrum, there were the get rich quick books, which I find so annoying, like Bitcoin or gold Mm. or this or that, whatever. It was just like trading system, boring. And now even when you think about how things break down. Um, There are these really awesome movements like the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. They're all really great. But um, the people that call my radio show and podcast or even my friends at work were not asking those kinds of questions. They were asking more sort of meat and potatoes questions that impact their day-to-day financial lives. And that's what I wanted to do. I just want to write a book for the people who've been asking me all these questions. And um, as you'll you see in the book that I have a lot of friends who make financial F-ups. <laughs> Which, you know, makes us feel better about ourselves because I think that's what's so intimidating, our fear of screwing it up. 
So, yeah, but yeah, that's weird though. It's funny. Like, why are we allowed to screw up in everywhere else in our life, but not yeah. this? You know, like we're t- kind of tough on ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. So it's cool to see and you exposing your own mistakes and your friends' mistakes, and these are super savvy people. So yeah, yeah I mean, look, if you think about why do we make mistakes around our financial lives, it's it's pretty clear to me that instead of looking at your financial life as some big broad calculation or mathematical equation or algorithm. Mm -hmm. Think of it as more like medicine, which is, you know, there is science behind it, but there is some art to it. There, there's a different way to diagnose things or there's different experiences. And, um, my friend who was a doctor many years ago said to me, you know, medicine is half art and half science. And if you get the half of science, right, there's only half a chance to screw up. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that in your financial life. Like there is a lot of math, but it is so much guided by our emotions, and those emotions are usually where we find ourselves going astray. Okay, so before we get to those big mistakes that most people make, I want to learn more about your money story. How did you even get to where you are? What was life like growing up? Well, I know. <laughs> um, so I grew up outside of New York. My dad was a options trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. Okay, so you grew up in, with finances being, you know, discussed in the house, or did dad absolutely? Talk about, okay, oh, totally. And and you know, he was a trader on the floor of an exchange before that was like a sexy job to have. Mm. Um, and and as he always likes to say, the only he got into trading because he says essentially I I was lazy. You know, I wanted to find a job where I could make uh, enough money to live my life but be home to coach your soccer team. Because when he started in the 19, say, late 60s, early 70s, the trading hours of the exchanges, it was 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Is that like the best day ever? Oh, my, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, he was around quite a bit, and um, and trading hours got longer and longer. It's now 9.30 to 4, but, you know, it trade we trade 24 hours a day. And his best friend from college, who is my godfather, was a trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So my summers were spent basically commuting into New York City, which is horrifying for, you know, a teenager, and then actually being a clerk for either my dad's firm or my uncle's firm. And so that led me to my first job on Wall Street, where I was a commodities trader on the floor of the Commodities Exchange of New York, one of eight women uh, or mid 800 men. And um, and then that was somewhat short lived because I was like, "Ugh, this is horrible. And then I became a financial planner and investment advisor. And from there, I actually went into media because one of the ways that I grew my business when I was managing money was that I hosted a radio show and one thing led to another and I ended up at CBS and I'm actually about to celebrate my 10 year anniversary at oh, CBS wow. News. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That is pretty impressive, too, especially like you said, you were one of the few females in the industry. What a- yeah, it was it was before me, too. I can't even tell you what happened to me because it's this is a family podcast. I know. <laughs> OK, dumb things smart people do with their money. 13 ways to right your financial wrongs. The big ones we're going to tackle today. Insurance, life insurance, how to pay for college and how to find the right advisor. There's a difference between advisor with an O and with an E. But first, Seven Figures is presented by Family First Credit Union, a helpful, educated team in our community that enjoys helping you live a financially healthy life. 
analyst for CBS News, host of the Jill on Money radio show and podcast, and author of the new book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Jill Schlesinger is here with us. All right. Talk to us about insurance. That seems to be so confusing for so many people. What do we need to know? In a nutshell, um, insurance is like probably the very best financial product out there. Kind of like the greatest invention ever. Okay. Because it, it is annoying and I get that. Okay. So um, let me be clear that insurance is boring, complicated, and thankless, but it is a critical component of your life. And here's why. The the cool part about insurance is it is based on a concept where you essentially are able to pay someone else to take on risk for you. That is what insurance really is. So you put in small dollars every single month or every year, and so do a lot of people like you. It is creating a pool And that pool splits the risk among everyone who's participating. And so essentially, when you think about insurance, what are you doing? You're paying a company to assume a risk for you. And there just aren't a lot of ways to completely get rid of risk, right? Mm -hmm. When you can pay someone to do it, it's amazing. So here's the deal. There's all different kinds of life and uh, all different kinds of insurance. There's life, there's disability, there's medical insurance and health insurance, and there's um, there's uh, long-term care insurance. But when I really think of the big issue around insurance is what you need to figure out is what am I trying to cover and what is the most efficient way to cover that risk? That's it. And so the the danger zone, I think, is essentially when it comes to different types of insurance is that people are really freaked out about contemplating bad things happening. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they stick their heads in the sand and they say, nah, nothing's bad's going to happen. And then something bad happens and then they say, oh, my God, well, how did that happen? So this is a real trap with insurance because you have to contemplate bad things happening and you then need to figure out how am I going to protect me? How am I going to protect my family against those bad things from happening? Now, it was funny because I had a conversation with a woman who spent her her life selling whole insurance and was very passionate about the benefits. Ironically, that night reading your book, you gave the example of your friends Kim and Peter and how whole insurance was their big mistake. So can you explain the difference between whole and, and term and when you need what? Yeah. So, okay, here's the deal. There are different kinds of life insurance. The okay. The first kind of life insurance that was essentially created was something called whole life insurance. What is that? It means that you purchase insurance that remains in force for your whole life. Get it? And so that means that you buy this insurance, you pay into it, and it has coverage for you until you die. And the problem with whole life insurance is that obviously it costs a lot more to keep that insurance as you get older because then you're coming towards the period of your life where you likely are going to need that insurance, meaning as you get older, insurance costs more because you're going to die, right? And you're getting closer to it. And the statistics behind whether or not you are going to die sooner rather than later start shifting. The insurance industry then became a little bit more aware of the fact that insurance can be purchased for a period of time or a specific term. So term life insurance is different from whole life in that you buy it for a specific 
period of time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And once you are done with that term, the insurance poof goes away. There's also one other very important distinction in looking at whole life or what's called permanent insurance versus that term insurance. Whole life insurance policies or all permanent life insurance policies have some component of the policy that is a savings component. And what is usually sold to people is that you will be able to use this policy to cover you for your whole life and also you'll be able to save money in it. The problem is that because of the special tricks of the trade, and I shouldn't say real tricks, just the nuance of what insurance is all about, is that the fees associated with the saving component is really off the charts. So what you're looking at is when you sort of say, hey, I need life insurance. Your first question is, do I really need insurance for my whole life or do I just need coverage for a specific period of time? And the answer to that for most people is, I just need it for a specific period of time while I'm young, while my kids are young, while I'm still accumulating assets. And if you are using insurance or it's being sold to you as a way, as a savings vehicle or an investment vehicle, the question is, well, can I do that in a cheaper way? And the answer is usually, yes, you can. Uh, And so that's the, those are the two big pieces of the insurance question. Okay. Because there is, uh, like you said, with term insurance, there's going to be a certain point in your life when you don't really need it anymore. When you accumulate enough money, when no people are counting on you for your income, right? Is that That's exactly okay. right. I mean, it's very funny because there are times where you say, I-, I find that people do sort of one extreme or the other. They either have bought like some crazy expensive whole life policy or universal life policy they don't need, or they basically have not re- re- recognized that they need insurance for some specific period of time. Okay. And so I absolutely that term during that term you know it may be that you're accumulating money in your retirement account or your kids are getting older and they don't need you know that for you to think about how to save money for them in the future but long story short most of us are very happy to use term life insurance for the period of time that we need our insurance there is a probably a fraction of folks out there listening who would be good candidates for a permanent life insurance policy but be very careful before you buy them because it is a sliver of the overall population okay another very important chapter in your book is about paying for college And I always knew this to be an issue. I think we all do. But when you broke it down and said almost half of Americans are willing to overextend themselves financially to help their kids live more comfortably, that is just that that's crazy. We have to nip this in the bud. Yeah. And and maybe that um, I have to say our chance to nip it in the bud may have already passed, because when you consider that we've got over a trillion and a half dollars of outstanding student loan debt, that's intense, right? Yeah. The fastest growing segment of student loan borrowers are people over the age of 60. That's crazy to me. Can you let that sink in for a second, right? It's nuts. It's nuts. And so what is happening? Parents and grandparents are saying, are reading every headline. They're listening to dopes like me on the news say, you must get a college degree to compete in this economy. True. There is no doubt that folks who have college degrees make more money over their, the span of their life work, right? Mm-hmm. So that's clear. The problem is that you don't have to pay through the nose to get that degree, meaning 
it's perfectly reasonable to say, yes, I should get a college degree. What is not reasonable is to put yourself in the hole for a hundred grand to get that college degree. And I think part of this, again, is the emotions that parents are not, I don't want to say they're unwilling to say no. It's just that they feel bad. They want to give their kids every advantage. And in doing so, they may be taking on debt that they shouldn't be. Maybe they're saying, well, you know what? I'm 48 years old. My kid really wants to go to Rochester and not a SUNY school. Okay. So there's a good choice. And maybe by going to Rochester, I'll get some, some financial aid, but maybe I won't. And so as a result, maybe I have to shell out 30 grand a year to help my kid get through school. And that means I can't put money into my retirement account. Well, that's a bad choice to make. I'm not saying that these elite schools are not great. They are great. But every family has to be very clear about the choices they're making. And don't just assume the best case scenario, because the decision you make when you're 48, eh, I'll just I'll be able to put money in, in, in five years. You know what I'll do? I'll put more money into my retirement account. The kids will be out of school. Everything will be great. You don't know what's going to happen yeah. in five years. You don't know whether you're going to keep your job or not. And it drives me batty because these kids, they don't they can't comprehend these numbers. They no. don't know. No. Yeah. And, and you know what? Maybe the parents don't either. But I will say this. I, I talk to college funding experts all the time. And one of the things that they say is that the, the clear path here is communication, right? And so that means parents, you need to be talking to your kids when they are freshmen in high school mm. and start finding out, hey, which one of my kids is actually like the party monster who's going to squander four <laughs> years at what's the matter you? Or which one is the real intellectual? And then you've got to figure out what can the family afford? We don't want families to go into hock, the kids, the parents or the grandparents, unless they are crystal clear about the choices they're making. And isn't it true that it's really the last two years that is what's what college is going to be listed on your diploma? Right. I mean, there are a lot of great stories about kids who go to community college for a couple of years, transfer into state school. That's all great. I mean, look, you also have to be uh, un you have to understand that some of the elite schools actually have great deals for people mm. who make less than 250 grand. You know, if you go to Harvard, there's a massive endowment there. And so if you're a family and you make you think, hey, I'm, I'm living pretty well, I'm making 150 grand a year. You might find that you get a great deal if your kid goes to Harvard. The problem is if you go down the tier to, you know, second, third, fourth tier schools that are private schools, they don't have those endowments. So now your kid is basically saying, I'm going to fourth tier private school versus SUNY. And you know what? That SUNY school, I would have gotten a great degree. I've got a good network and I'm fine rather than graduating with $120,000 in debt. Awesome. Okay, finally. And this is something that I didn't even realize until I heard you talking about it on your podcast. There is a difference between advisor O and an E with financial advisors that you're choosing. Yeah. Well, so let's just go back in time and tell you that financial professionals, and I put that in quote, I'm making air quotes with my hands, yeah. that encompasses a ton of different types of people. Okay. So you know that there are essentially salespeople and advice givers. That's kind of how the world breaks down in financial services. The problem that has arisen is that the demarcation between a salesperson and an advice giver has really been blurred. So 
what I what the most important thing for a consumer to understand is you got to determine whether the person is actually paid to give you advice in which case that person is considered a fiduciary they've got to put your needs before their own needs right so they've got to put you first and have to give you the advice that's in your best interest okay the salesperson has to give you um, a sales pitch which may contain a little financial advice on the side and that pitch has to be suitable for someone like you but it doesn't have to be the best advice mm-hmm. for you and so there are advice there's a very weird thing which is in the in the United States securities law advisor with an OR versus ER is a distinction what you need to know is when you're talking to a financial professional the easiest thing to ask is must you put my best interest are you held to the fiduciary standard at all times not just when you give me off-the-cuff advice but also when you're selling me product that's your key if I'm dealing with a fiduciary someone who is held to put my best interest first at all times okay then I might want to really listen hard at the advice I'm being given if I'm working with a broker or a salesperson they may be able to sell me a product and that product may be just fine for me but it may not be in my best interest please be clear this is an important distinction it sounds kind of like annoying and nitpicky but it's pretty it's pretty important because look at you would you walk into a doctor's office and you say that doctor you would assume that doctor has to give me the medical advice that's right for me mm-hmm. and not the medical advice that's going to make him or her the most money that's okay for me that's a pretty big distinction yeah but oh gosh if you say hey listen are you looking out for my best interest what if the dude's like yeah don't worry about it okay so here's a great follow-up question because you know sometimes you have to translate into the words that they will understand sure. yeah okay so the first the great thing that you can do is you can look at this person in the eye and say hey do you put my best interest first yeah of course I do okay or do you and your firm adhere to the fiduciary standard at all times so drop that f-bomb drop okay. that fiduciary are you held to the fiduciary standard at all times okay and they're gonna look at you like "Uh oh how did she know they asked that that okay. sucks now I got to answer it and don't you dare be scared to ask that don't Ooh. be scared and by the way if you get some like some like real jive talk or you're feeling like this dude or dudette is kind of ru- giving me the runaround walk out because your BS factor in your belly is probably onto something. Sometimes we all have that feeling like, I think this this person is kind of yanking me, right? Yeah. You have that feeling? Yeah, I felt that sometimes in a car dealership, right? You walk into the car dealership and you're like, it used to be that you have to like really bargain with them. Now we just go online and we know how much money they make. Mm-hmm. But you'd get that feeling like, God dang it, this person is just yanking my chain. And I remember like maybe 10 years ago I was buying a car and I felt like, oh man, he's treating me like little, he literally said to me like, is your husband coming? I'm like, dude, I don't have a husband. You want to sell a car or not? Right? Yeah. And then I get this run around, talk to this, talk to this. And then I finally just looked at the guy and I said, I think we're done. And I walked out and it was great. See, and that's one big thing in your book too. You know, your fear of looking foolish. Just ignore it. Forget it. 
There is no looking foolish yeah. here. You know, I remember when, uh, you know, doctors, we used to put them on pedestals. Mm-hmm. And my parents are just like totally like that. When I would literally like ask a question when my dad was in the hospital and dying and I'd ask a question and I'd tell the story in the book. Like I'd ask a question about the doctor. My father's like, why are you disrespecting him? I'm like, I'm not disrespecting him. I'm just wondering that you, as you lay dying here in the ICU, whether we need to put you through 10 more tests. Like, yeah. is the answer going to be any different than the one that we just got? Yeah. Jill Schlesinger, analyst for CBS News, host of the Jill on Money radio show and podcast, and author of the new book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. You are fantastic. Thank you so much for taking time. Well, thanks for having me. It was great. Love Aunt Jill. From one spectacular guest to another, next week, former bankruptcy court judge John Nympho joins the conversation. He has some wild stories to tell, plus a lot of financial wisdom, too. Enjoy your weekend, and I will talk to you next week. Cheers to being financially confident women. If you have a personal finance question or feedback about the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to Sandy at sandy at rochesterbuzz.com. New episode every Friday. Listen, subscribe, and tell a friend about the Seven Figures podcast. Smart money strategies for women.